baby, let's cruise away from here. Don't be confused, baby. The way is clear. Uh, yes, hello, I would like... <laughs> Can I please say what I want to say? <laughs> yes, hello. I would like to report a murder. This is Where's Love? I'm Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And hey, it's been such a long week. Uh, and so. I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> we've been uh, sick all week. I've had travel. Not COVID, just a. Very yeah, not bad COVID. Cold. Not COVID. We've all, yeah. So I'm back to just sounding. I don't even know what this time. Um, uh,. And work has just been crazy, um, but I'm feeling better. Yeah, I'm feeling better. Poor Ilaria's not. Ilaria's not feeling better. She's feeling worse. Yeah, little little biscuit. Um, I have a lot of work to do this weekend, but tonight I took a little bit of a break, and I saw Wynton Marsalis, uh, and that was incredible. Never seen him before huge bucket list item and so that was great i'm feeling good and uh yeah i felt like singing so one of the things is if if anyone listening is a voice expert um let me know if there's any sort of truth to this ever since i was a little kid um so I've always loved singing, singing in choir, dun, dun, dun. You heard that last week when you heard about how Melissa and I met and started dating and all that. But uh, ever since I was little, I always thought there is a window after a cold mm, yeah. where my voice is better yeah. than anything. I yeah. could hit notes I can't hit before. It has a strength that it doesn't have before. And it fades so, like, there's, like, a window I just love. It's the only good thing about getting a cold. I'll be all dreary and mopey, but the thing that'll lift me up is thinking, you know, when I kick this cold, I'm going to have, like, a 36-hour window where I can just sing whatever I want. And so mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to do, and mm-hmm. I did it. Well, when I had the laryngitis two weeks ago, uh, I was singing Saoirse Her Lullaby, and I was hitting those low notes because right after I'm through like the worst of the laryngitis and I'm getting my singing voice back, I'm such a low alto at that point. I was able to hit those notes with precision. And yeah. then it goes away. And yeah. it's sad. Yeah. I, uh, I don't mind when you have laryngitis. You know this. Yeah, no, I know. I can't believe you brought that up, but yes. <laughs> I like the way your voice sounds. Okay. We don't need to unpack that. Okay. Um, let's, I'm I just... think the innuendo's up there. Yes. 
folks. It's out in space. Folks, Melissa and I have been like ships in the night. Uh, and so this is like the first time we've sat down. And Michael's fiending. All week. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? You are allowed to say okay. that. I'm just tempted to sing Jodeci now, but oh I think God. one song is a, a, a enough uh, for the episode. Uh, hey, we, we, we actually do have quite a bit uh, of news to discuss yes. uh, in the episode uh, today. Just want to thank y'all for the feedback um, to uh, the last episode. Uh, three of you were willing to lend us your teenagers, which we're super grateful for. That's not enough for a focus group yet, Mm-mm. but uh, but if if three others have teenagers that they want to loan us, uh, we're still committed to the focus group idea. Um, and so uh, so thanks for that. Uh, that's a lot of trust you're putting in us. Um, and so 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 that's that's something that we'll. We'll, uh, we'll keep tracking. Then the other thing for audience uh, members who are hoping that this episode would be the engagement story. No, we, we don't have that planned. That'll be, that's a story we always have in our back holster. And so, or a back pocket. I was going to say back pocket. I was I've like, what's completely the back mixed. Holster? I don't know what a back holster is. Uh, uh, back pocket, holster. Okay, yes. Either would have been fine. You just can't combine the two. I know. I gave there is you no a such, look as soon as it came out. Yeah, there is no such like, thing as a back holster, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so, it, uh, yeah. yeah. Somebody somebody, tell us, please. Uh, no, we don't. I mean, we, we solved it. We know. Oh, okay. um, uh, but uh, the engagement story will, will be, you know, if you really want to hear, you'll just listen to every episode between now and the time when... We don't have anything we want to discuss. And but then you'll be pleasantly surprised. You'll, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Just like Melissa was the night I proposed to her. Uh, <laughs> wow. So we uh, actually have three stories we want to discuss on the episode uh, today. And uh, the first we're all sort of start is with this really interesting uh, New York Times story that uh, was the byline is shared between Elizabeth Diaz and Ruth Graham. Uh, The headline is the growing religious fervor in the American right. Uh, uh, This is a Jesus movement. And that's, that's a quotation from, I believe from someone in the, in the article. We don't have too much well, Melissa, I don't know mm-hmm. sort of what you want to cover in the article here. I don't have too much. I mean, I mean, some of this um, we've covered on, on the podcast before, and sort of, sort of Christian circles, it's been discussed. Part of what was interesting about this was to have it in the New York Times, but there was a like a a new angle. Or, or just a little bit of a, a change up from the typical conversation, which is uh, there's been a lot of talk about a, a politics sort of replacing religion and people uh, bringing uh, politics, uh, sort of being led by their politics, not by their faith. And that's been sort of rightly critiqued. 
And one of the things that happens is uh, as ideas get critiqued and then the critique gets democratized, the critique becomes a shorthand and people respond to the shorthand. And look, this is a direction I'm going to be going down in my work in in some pretty serious ways, I, I, I hope, in unpacking this. So just want to talk about it briefly on the podcast here. Um, but this sort of like sloganeering and this sort of response by slogan from Christians to the political, cultural, religious moment in this country is just not going to be, not only is it not sufficient, uh, you will be easily, easily misled. And this article is a really good example why. Uh, Because the language that is used Uh, In this article, in other words, the folks that are quoted in this article are saying things that are consistent in a way with the kinds of uh, critiques of uh, from the left or from the center right, the sort of anti-Trump sort of voices. of the way politics is unfolded uh, with the religious right. And so, you know, f- for instance, uh, well, this is not a, this is not a, um, a, a quote, but, but this is a good synopsis of the article as a whole. Uh, uh, Graham and Diaz write, the Christian right has been intertwined with American conservatism for decades, culminating in the Trump era. And elements of Christian culture have long been present at political rallies. But worship, a sacred act showing devotion to God, expressed through movement, song, or prayer, was largely reserved for church. Now, many believers are importing their worship of God with all its intensity, emotion, and ambitions to their political life. That's an incredibly complex paragraph if you're someone who's been following some of the political theology, even sort of the the general level political theology conversation, uh, right? Because so much of the criticism, again, has been, uh, uh, you know, conservatives didn't bring enough sort of faith to their politics. Again, politics has sort of supplanted uh, religion. Well, you, you read this and you might think, well, well, this might sound like a, Correction, you know, read this paragraph out of context. And if your primary critique has been, you know, politics has really been leading the way of religion, you might read this and and uh, and go, well, it sounds like a, a positive turn is being made. Instead of politics leading religion, people are bringing not just religious sort of language, but the, the act of worship to political rallies. They're not being led by ideology anymore. Uh, of course, what's laid out in the article shows um, that maybe that democratized sort of sloganeering of what the problem has been, once it gets 
sort of reduced to sort of a bumper sticker or a line or a phrase, it actually isn't the problem, right? Like, like the, 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 the core problem isn't, can't be simply uh, that uh, sort of there was uh, too um, defined of a political ideology that overran religious sentiments. Uh, or at least that could have been the only problem because this article goes on to describe some pretty problematic behavior flowing from a pretty like uh, 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 unideological, uh, a, a pretty like, um, this is not really a worldview approach to politics that's being laid out uh, by Graham and Diaz identified here. Uh, and so it, just to read some of these quotes, uh, what is refreshing for me is this isn't at all related to church, but we are talking about God, said Patty Castillo Porter, who attended the Phoenix event. Uh, uh, she's an accountant, an officer with the local Republican committee to represent, quote, the voice of grassroots American America First posse. Uh, she continued, now God is relevant. You name it, God is there because people know you can't trust your politicians, you can't trust your sheriffs, you can't trust law enforcement. The only one you can trust is God right now. Uh, the the um, A major theme of the article is the use of uh, worship music to uh, uh, in, in these rallies and in this sort of activism. Uh, like the song Waymaker, which will be familiar uh, to many of you. Carrie Job's music is very popular. And this is not ideological music. This is sort of um, mainstream. Some might call it a little sort of, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if triumphalistic is the right word, but certainly sort of declarative. Certainly, you know, uh, there's an ideology of, uh, or sort of, sort of, it is sort of, um, you know, our God will carry the day kind of kind of worship music. It's it's not sort of liberty, freedom, uh, uh, sort of um, conservative political ideology, sort of trafficked in worship music. That that's what kind of makes this makes this interesting. And so, but Melissa, I, I think just the you know we've talked about this mm -hmm. off off the mic yeah. and. I'm I'm working on some things to sort of flesh out these ideas in a way that I, I don't want to sort of share at this moment. I think the point I want to make is we need to be really careful in this moment that we're not just reacting to mm -hmm. what happened previously. Yeah. That we're not just reacting to sort of just a simplified conception of, of quote unquote what went wrong. Yep. Uh, and this article really, really lays out the, 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 the dangers of what can happen when, uh, when, when we communicate through slogans and when the people that we're influencing sort of imbibe that as the totality of. Uh, a diagnosis, not just of what has happened, but of the of the way forward. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. You and I have talked numerous times, like you just said, um, ever since January 6th, um, with this term Christian nationalism constantly being thrown out as a diagnosis for everything that we're seeing. 
and how we need to be extremely careful about that. But this current podcast episode is not the time or place to go into that completely in depth, but please do check out the article. We'll include it in the episode notes. Uh, the next the next essay that we wanted to talk about was uh, Bill Clinton's essay in The Atlantic um, just a couple of days ago. Uh, the title of the uh, essay is I Tried to Put Russia on Another Path. Um, the subtitle, My Policy Was to Work for the Best While Expanding NATO to Prepare for the Worst. And I, I mean, I personally, uh, I just love stuff like this, obviously, because I love NATO. I love the EU and Europe. Um, so I'm just a complete nerd for this. But I do love when presidents look far back on some of their policy decision making because we get to get inside their head. Obviously, they've had a lot of time to reflect on it, maybe re revise some of the things they actually were thinking or doing. But um, usually it's some of the best ways that we can get some insight besides, you know, doing a FOIA. Um, and so FOIA is a yeah, oh, yes. Freedom of Information Act request um, to, to, like, get access to uh, federal government documents and and meeting notes and that that kind of thing. Yeah, so like you could request a conversation between um, President Clinton and Boris Yeltsin, right? You know, the Russian president yeah, yeah. after after um, the the dis the dissolve of the USSR. Um, but we're hearing it from from uh, President Clinton here, and so what he talks about is uh, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, he supported the expansion of NATO, and some at the time. Some big experts at the time supported him in that, and some big experts at the time, and he mentions this article, people like George Kennan, who was the author of containment policy during the Cold War, the idea that, you know, you should contain Russia versus trying to be actually quite um, sort of offensive towards Russia. Um, so George Kennan disagreed with him at the time for expanding NATO, and Clinton basically presents the, the honestly, a common policy dilemma that all presidents face, that you know, if you go one way, A or B might happen. If you go another way, A or B might happen. You just have to choose the best, worst option. And for him, he thought, well, Boris Yeltsin um, is quite a uh, sort of docile leader, you know, post-Cold War and uh, is very cooperative, you know, is being included in um, talks um, and being mentioned as, you know, oh, Russia might be able to join NATO at some point. But Bill Clinton is here sitting here thinking, wait, Boris Yeltsin is not always going to be in power. What about the next Russian leader? We should really expand so that this sort of, um, and he mentions in here, which is very, very important, this European peace, which at the time didn't feel completely ine inevitable, didn't feel like it would always be there. He was preparing for European peace sort of going away again. Um, and for me, I, I mean, Vladimir Putin came after that. Um, Vladimir Putin with his uh, sort of um, ideas about what Russia should be and what Russia could have been, um, his sort of ultra-nationalist ultra uh, views with, you know, a weakened Russian economy. And, you know, since then, since he came into power in the early 2000s, um, and President Clinton was there to usher him in for a little while, and then he obviously he had to hand over the reins to President Bush, um, Putin was that next leader that President Clinton was worrying about. And so it's very smart of him to write this essay to say, I, I was preparing for someone like Putin. Um, I have a few other thoughts, Michael, but, uh, did you want to jump in? Well, you know, uh, 
the whole essay is just so Bill Clinton. Oh, yes. The the most Clinton thing that he does is the the line about uh, Putin could have created the next Silicon uh, or, or mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a Silicon Valley in Russia, yeah. But instead, and that that sort of Clinton ability, uh, Bill Clinton in particular, his ability to sort of um, cast a, a vision or sort of lay out a big idea is yes. really kind of unparalleled. He, he did, it, it really is kind of like incredible. It's funny uh, you note that one because I noted the one, the, the the casting of a vision where he said that Eastern Eastern Europe wished to go west while Russia interpreted it as going east. Um, yeah. That's a really important line because, again, for him, it also places the sort of agency on Eastern Europe wanting to join and the agency on Russia thinking that that, that was actually something that was antagonistic by expanding so much into the Warsaw Pact in the former Soviet countries. Yeah. Um, it's just very, he just has a way with language and with um, sort of forming arguments, especially looking back on his decision making. Yeah. So I thought, I, you know, I, I wanted to pull that out. I guess the most significant thought really wasn't even raised by a, a, a particular argument he was making, um, but he did raise Budapest. Now, the Budapest Agreement was uh, basically um, in exchange for Ukraine's sovereignty and territory to be guaranteed. Ukraine, which at the time had the third largest nuclear sort of uh, 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 capability, third third mm-hmm. third highest sort of yep. nuclear stockpile, um, uh, they would it would give give that up, um, and it made me think, Melissa, you know, I went back and forth, um, and was almost I was I was worried about. Including in the article I wrote for Breaking Ground, uh, mm-hmm. which we'll link in the episode notes, um, I I left open the question. I said, you know, I, I really um, I support nuclear nonproliferation, uh, but in the article I sort of raised the possibility that I may be wrong about that. Mm-hmm. I may. Uh, I how can I know for sure that those who argue for deterrence are wrong? How how can I know for sure mm-hmm. that in the end nuclear weapons haven't saved more lives than uh, than uh, it's than nuclear weapons have 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 cost? And you know, Budapest has come under you know Zelensky's invoked Budapest mm-hmm. as a sort of a sacrifice Ukraine made for the international order. Yeah. But the international order not uh, not serving Ukraine in this moment. And it, it just made me think, A, not to pat myself on the back, but I'm really glad I kept it in the piece because I believed it then. This is just one of those scenarios where, it, you know, it, it's it's now very easy to, to play out and imagine, you know, would would Ukraine be in the situation it is now if it had a nuclear stockpile. I think it's pretty like... Now, of course, you know, what other ramifications would there be if Ukraine had a nuclear stockpile? But but just the it may, the fact that Clinton brought up Budapest re, re, reminded me of that sort of deliberation I went through for the Breaking Ground article. 
and this idea that, um, you know, Clinton's defending all the decisions he made, you know, uh, and, he, and he, he makes a compelling argument. Um, all of this, though, is so contingent. Mm-hmm. All of this is just so contingent. Uh, and um, uh, it is decisions have to be made. Uh, but really, the main thing I thought reading Clinton's article was uh, just a... a, a there before the grace of God, I go, I go, you know, like, yeah. like just, just a sense that, uh, just a sense that, um, uh, gosh, he, he runs through the list of decisions he made and each one is like stuff that keeps you up at night uh, that would keep mm-hmm. a president up at night. So, yeah. so that was, that was sort of the main thought I had reading this. Yeah. That's a much more eloquent way than the sort of thing that immediately came to mind after I read the article and what I was starting to get into before. But I immediately thought of there's this um, it's not a debate necessarily but it's a, it's a concept really in sociology called agency versus structure um, and it's it, it's about the behavior of people as soci- as sociology is the study of the behavior of people um, and why they do what they do and there's this idea that um, you know people are more so dealing with structural barriers and that's what determines their behavior and then there's the argument that no um, agency can actually overcome structure, uh, all kinds of structures and barriers in that way. And I mean, really what Clinton was dealing with at the time was very much the weighing of which one matters more to him. Right. Yeah. Because at the time, and it's very, and again, all of this is very specific to that time period. Yes. Again, Ukraine even agreeing to the Budapest Agreement and giving up because they knew that they knew that it was it wasn't just a sort of like a um, a sort of technocratic a severing of ties with Russia. It was a symbolic, like a deeply symbolic severing of ties with its its former, you know, right. Soviet state. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, you know, again, um, Yeltsin was very much leading a very weak Russia. The structural barriers for him. So that's what Clinton was dealing with. He knew that Yeltsin was actually quite boxed in, and that he had a much softer Russia to deal with. But he knew, probably looking back at history, that when countries are down, they can get right back up again. I mean, look at Germany um, post-World War One and in the 1930s period. Countries can get right back up, especially when it comes to specific leaders, where the agency of one specific leader can change the entire country's trajectory. Hmm. And that's Vladimir Putin yeah, yeah, yeah. and his ideology and how he views the world and how he sees Russia and the world and why he would even go and start a, such a, honestly, a ridiculous war in the first place with Ukraine right now, even if it doesn't have nuclear weapons. So that was, that's what Clinton was preparing for. He decided to um, basically take advantage of the structural barriers of, of Yeltsin to prepare yeah. for the agency of a future leader who could, you know, have glory, have sort of like um, uh, nostalgia for the glory days of the USSR. Yeah. It's one last thing I'd say before we move on to the last, the last article here is, um, There are certainly, I mean, President Obama gave an interview where he sort of revisited some of his decisions mm-hmm. related to yeah. uh, related to uh, George W. Bush has been speaking yes. a bit. There's obviously, right, some legacy stuff going on here, some ego mm-hmm. stuff, and I don't even mean that in a, in a bad way, just, just sort yeah. of, you know, um, uh, 
sort of personal legacy protect. But it's really important not to dismiss uh, the the Clinton article or some of the comments you've heard from folks who are in decision making roles uh, during the Cold War, end of the Cold War, post Cold War, as merely sort of personal, right? Clinton is writing this article because the future of NATO is up for debate. Yeah, <laughs> like and there's it has a been for a while. yes, like there's a live conversation. And as Melissa said, has been for a while. Uh, and the way which we decide now, um, the the way that we determine what the wisdom of decisions like Clinton's to expand NATO, uh, not Clinton's alone, but you know what I mean, uh, uh, the decision to expand NATO in the 90s, the way that we sort of uh, judge the wisdom of that now is going to tilt uh, uh, tilt the scales mm-hmm. in one direction or the other as to what, uh, particularly the American role in this context, but also globally, you know, what decisions are made about NATO moving forward. And when you look at all of the various sort of presidents and leaders' comments, uh, there's that angle too. It's not just about sort of personal legacy protection and, and that, although, you know, that's always, these are human beings. But there's also um, a sensitivity to the fact that, like, this isn't just history, right? If, mm-hmm. if, if, if the whole crisis in Ukraine right now is a, is a, uh, should be a very clear, clear sort of picture of the sense that there is no such thing as mm-hmm. as history uh, uh, or things staying uh, sort of. In, in the past when it comes to global affairs. And so uh, just as as, uh, as listeners, as you all see sort of comments being made, uh, I've been seeing like some d- dismissive stuff and, uh, oh, you know, uh, that's not how I remember it going down. And that's fine. Also understand that there's a current debate that even if they're talking about the past, there's an eye towards the current debate and the future of American foreign policy uh, and global affairs, and, and that's what we're seeing. Melissa, I think where we want to end the episode uh, is f- France, yeah. which has... La France. Uh, uh, which has... Yeah, uh, yeah, I said France very, France. very... France! 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 Uh, France. Yeah, we want to go to France. You uh, sound like um, Amy Poehler's character in the SNL skits. Rick! 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 <laughs> uh, Rick. Well, when are you going to take me to France? <laughs> no, literally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but Melissa, tee this up. And for those who don't know, uh, Melissa is... Uh, Melissa doesn't brag on herself or sort of... Melissa's kind of an expert <laughs> on the right in France. Uh, uh, she's been tracking this since she was a college student. Her master's thesis was on... Uh, a xenophobic rhetoric on the left and the right uh, in France. Uh, she's been talking to me about Le Pen since, uh, like, we were uh, in show choir, <laughs> yes. uh, and so, um, and so, Melissa, yeah, to tell us, you've been, you've seen this mm-hmm. coming, yes, uh, for a while. Yes. So tell us. 
what is this and what's happening this weekend? Yeah, it's my time to shine. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we're talking about the French presidential election, um, which is happening, the first round is happening in a day. Um, it's happening, it starts on April 10th. Um, there's two rounds if there's no majority, one um, by any single candidate, then there's a runoff on April 24th, which almost always there is a runoff. Um the French presidential election happens every five years. Uh, the election period, so the campaigning period beforehand, is much shorter than the United States. As I mean, the United States is pretty much an outlier in that sense. Um, so uh, while um, uh, a lot of candidates might announce a year before, they really don't start camp really hard campaigning until you know just a few you know several weeks ago. Uh, what's going on there? Well, France is a fun case. Um, there's always this idea that, I mean, I've written about this in the Substack, and you'll hear me talk about this all the time about, you know, Europe as a utopia, um, Europe as this sort of like postmodern paradise. Uh, France has a xenophobia and racism problem that just um, is pretty rampant, um, especially in France. And it has been for a very long time. So you'll see, you'll see, be seeing a lot of articles written about somebody called Marine Le Pen, and she's the leader of the National Rally Party, the uh, one of the far right wing parties in France. And you'll sort of see like, oh, the sudden rise of Marine Le Pen, or you know, can't believe that uh, in polling right now, which I'll get into, um, she's doing so well. And will Emmanuel Macron, the current leader of France, lose? Um, all of this surprising. None of this is surprising. The National Rally was created in 1972 um, by uh, Francois Duprat and uh, uh, Francois, uh, Francois Brignot. Um, and the sort of ideology, and it was at that point, it was called the National Front. So in 2018, they changed the name from National Front to National Rally. They rebranded, which I can get into possibly um, if I do have the time, but National Front founded in 1972, and the origins are in what's called like a revolutionary nationalism ideology. So it's it's a nationalist party, and some would even call it ultra-nationalist. Some people call it neo-fascist. Um, but it, it's founded in revolutionary nationalism ide ideology, which was um, something that was pushed by young neo-fascist activists of the New Order movement back then. And uh, the leader that was named um, a short while after it was founded was um, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, Jean-Marie Le Pen led um, the National Front, or now the National Rally, from uh, 1972 to 2011. So Marine Le Pen, the, the candidate who is running today, is his daughter. So it's family business here. Um, and uh, in the 80s, uh, National Rally actually really gained a lot of ground. It became actually quite popular. They've, they started to see a, quite a bit of success. They ran in, in the 90s and in the 2000s, you know, they lost a bit of momentum, but you know, I was looking back at the numbers for the since the presidential elections since um, basically '88, and in 2012, Marine Le Pen she got 17.9 percent of the vote, um, the highest ever at that point, um, running against Francois Hollande uh, of the Socialist Party and um, Sarkozy, who was who at that point was the current leader of France. She got the highest percentage ever for the National Front. Um, again, about 18%, she got third place. And then in 2017, when Emmanuel Macron won, she got 21.3% second place. So they've kind of been on a little bit of a roller coaster, but since 2012, the National Rally has been on the uptick. 
they have been building. Um, what they're built on, really, um, and what Marine Le Pen has kept from her father, her father had uh, a lot, would say, even more extreme views than she did, and she has purportedly softened the party. And it's true. She's blonde. She's very good-looking. When you see her speak, even if you don't even understand French, she's very personable. Um, she's... She's almost like a Bill Clinton-esque type, type of energy that I see when I watch videos of her. And she softened the party a little bit, but pretty much most of the base of their the far-right ideology is there. Very, 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 very anti-immigrant. This entire party was essentially found on anti-immigration. And not just any immigration, but specifically of Muslims, which adds on a whole other layer because what what is Islam? Islam is religion. So it's Islamophobia, it's xenophobia, it's racism, it's all in one. This is what this party stands for. Um, and so you think in 2017 they got second place. Well, lo and behold, um, we've got some polling now um, coming out from several different um, pollsters, which shows that in a runoff, so not in the initial election this coming Sunday, but in a runoff between Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron. Again, Emmanuel Macron is the current uh, leader of France, and he's um, his party, um, La Marche, is basically a, a moderate party. Um, Le Pen is polling at around anywhere between 49 to 50%, and Macron around the same. Some polls have uh, Le Pen winning and some have Macron just eking it out. And obviously there's a margin of error in all these polls that is big enough to really not be able to tell. This is astounding. Just one month ago, four weeks ago, Le Pen was 10 points behind. Um, so some people are asking, well, how could she have caught up this quickly? Ukraine happened. And remember what I said before, France's elections, the campaign period is not that long. For, and Emmanuel Macron just hasn't had time to campaign. Like, it's well documented now that he's had to basically scramble, you know, while trying to get um, Europe through um, this Ukraine crisis. He hasn't been able to campaign. And meanwhile, Le Pen has been able to step in. And again, because she has softened the face of this party, it's still very much an ultra-nationalist party. Um, she's been able to use a much softer rhetoric since 2017 with Macron as the sort of pinnacle of the current leadership she and there's this pattern in France and this is what I was studying back in my master's degree where even on the socialist left the socialist uh Francois Hollande when he was running in 2012 he'd use extremely similar rhetoric to Le Pen during that time and to Sarkozy who is on the conservative side um very very Islamophobic rhetoric very anti-immigrant rhetoric in a bid because even back then like I said with those numbers in 2012 Le Pen was gaining ground even then um, so it's just a very interesting thing in France where m much of the narrative today, especially when you look at American politics, is that the left never participates in things as bad as, you know, racist or xenophobic rhetoric. But in France, it's par for the course. Everybody does it across the board. That's just what you do. Um, and so uh, Macron hasn't had time to campaign. Um, th there's some people say that Macron... Um, and if you've watched him at all since 2017, since he's run, he's, um, he's, uh, he's very confident. He's very brash. He comes off as sort of very egotistical and that has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So there's a lot of stories right now that even his on the past, other hand, they are French. So, well, no, for real. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> it's again, par for the course, but, um, there are some voters that are currently turned off by yeah, his, sure. his sort of, you know, I can do no wrong attitude and, um, in the Ukraine crisis, he's really tried to take 
uh, Angela, uh, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel's place as the sort of best friend of Putin to try to con- you know convince Putin to sort of uh, pull out from his wild idea of uh, invading Ukraine, and so he's sort of had had to present through this Ukraine crisis this very very confident, brash. Um, I am the number one leader of Europe. I must be the one to lead through. And for a lot of people, that that's a turnoff, besides the fact that he couldn't campaign. Mm. Um, so, yes, we have the possibility that a far right-wing party will win the presidency in France. And it is 100% not surprising. It has been decades coming. Okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Uh, well, so... Uh, I did see an interesting demographic breakdown of these polls oh, that showed yeah, that's another one. Yep, that showed now. Now this is mm-hmm. this is interesting, and this is something for uh, us to think about whether it's possible in the American context. But mm-hmm. uh, Le Pen's highest levels of support are with the youngest voters. Yes, and it actually scales pretty. Uh, consistently, sort of the older they get, the more they support Macron and the less they support Le Pen. Um, which, you know, if you haven't been, been paying attention to, for instance, sort of uh, uh, the, the um, radicalization or, or, or sort of the growth of a right-wing young male movement in Israel, for instance... Uh, uh, then you might be completely uh, taken aback. Or if your view is that sort of young people are inherently progressive uh, and sort of uh, uh, the most open, the most tolerant, dun-dun-dun, and it's only when they get older uh, that they get more conservative, then then that'll be surprising to you. It will be interesting to see if, if those numbers... Hold actually actual hold up. Voting. Yes, I completely agree. So that that's one comment. Uh, the second comment is this isn't the first time that there has been chatter of is this Le Pen's time? Well, yeah. And there have been polls leading up to these elections that have suggested that she's gaining momentum. That she's gaining yes. momentum, that that uh, that she has a real shot sort of polls that show her within Within sort of um, uh, that 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 she she has a shot of winning, and what happens is, um, I mean, I don't want to speak sort of definitively here, but like mm-hmm. it see it seems that what what happens is when French voters are are really brought to the precipice of yeah. making a decision about who they want to lead their country. Le, Le, just Le Pen for all that she's done to sort of soften, etc. Um, it's still been just too far of a of a chasm to uh, to, to 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 cross. Um, the question is is will it you know will it be different this time? Uh, you know, and, and so so we'll we'll watch. I think a lot of people uh, you know assume this will go to a runoff. Yes, and that will. once the the choice is crystallized. Probably between Macron and Le Pen, though you know surprises happen. Um, uh, that that once sort of uh, it's a clear race. Once Macron is able to focus politically on the challenge, that 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 Le Pen's uh, Le Pen's negatives will go 
sort of back up and uh, and we'll see these polls stabilize. It could be different this time, though. Uh, yeah. we, we People were shocked at Brexit. They were uh-huh. shocked by Trump. Uh, I, I don't think that it should be ruled out in this environment that... Uh, that that someone like Le Pen could win a national national election. Yeah, the thing that I think is different from 2017, um, because the first round of polling actually had Le Pen quite close to Macron again, and but then when it came to the actual runoff, Macron had 66 percent and Le Pen had you know 34 percent. It's suddenly the sh- the the ca- the sort of chasm like really really um, expanded in that runoff. In 2017, though, because I, I watched I watched that um, yeah, that election sure. closely as well, is the media momentum behind that election just wasn't as what it what it is right now in terms of this. Oh no, is Le Pen going to win? Wasn't as prominent. It was you know it was there in the French press a little bit. It wasn't there in any kind of like European press or international press, and so I fear that. If Le Pen does perform as well as she should in the first round, that if the momentum behind the sort of media narrative is, oh no, this is not looking good for Macron, that you have such a sort of negative, either that will in fact turn out people for Macron who are suddenly scared, which should have done in Brexit, which was the common wisdom of what it would, you know, like when Brexit got close, that oh, people would show up because it's going to be too close, or a, oh, this is lost to us, or for Le Pen's base to make sure that they're showing up as well, especially for young people. Um, and it, and the thing I want to bring up about young people, and again, France is just another fun fun case, is um, national identity in France is just wildly strong. And it, ha- and, and it, it was built that way off of the revolution. Um, and it has, and it's uh, concretized constantly this idea of what is France, the idea of France, the idea of what it is to be French. Um, and Le Pen, with being a sort of, with being a far-right nationalist or ultra-nationalist party, um, I do want to bring up that another far-right-wing party has popped up in France, led by Eric Zemmour, who was polling quite w- well for a while, but Le Pen just has too much yeah. momentum and organization and know-how behind her to let anybody sort of come in and steal sure. her far-right glory. He went more towards like what her father used to be, like really extreme views, um, and uh, you know his party was called uh, his party is called because he's, obviously he's still running. It's called uh, Rencontre, which is recovery, and actually has an exclamation point at the end, which reminds me of uh, Jeb. Jeb 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 Bush. And please, his, clap. <laughs> please clap, please <laughs> clap. His twenty sixteen campaign. Well, Rencontre, recovery. And so that's what the far right has been capitalizing on forever is this idea of a recovery of France because right. France has been lost because of rising immigration, especially economic immigration, people taking our jobs and taking our identity and not speaking French because actually speaking French, as you've heard probably in many stereotypes, but that's part of this like really wildly strong and like visceral national identity that france has and so i'm not surprised that young people would actually be quite um attracted yes to this very strong yes. identity when identity politics isn't just an american thing it's all it's a western thing really as well um 
when that's very strong of who am I and where do I belong? Because in France, and, the, the yeah. idea of belonging is, is at the heart of a French national identity. Yeah. I'm so not surprised that young people would be deeply attracted to that. And then the 55 plus who the, the cohort that is um, voting uh, highest for Macron would know better in terms of you know, <laughs> what a far right wing party would do. Um, and how it will look on the national stage. Because, again, you know, Marine Le Pen, what she offers to the young people is, you know, my father would have left NATO, but, you know, we'll just leave a uh, we'll We'll stay in NATO. We'll leave a couple of the things that are a bit pesky that, you know, don't allow France to flourish, but we'll stay a part of NATO. And for a lot of people, it's kind of like, oh, you know, she wouldn't kind of... Uh, you know, she wouldn't completely blow it up, but, but you know, she, it would be more favorable. She would favorable. make sure that France is number yes, one. Yes, right. And it would be the most favorable to France in our best, that's in right. our, the the one that serves our self interest the best. Um, so uh, the, yeah. that sort of numbers, which I know is counterintuitive to like the American um, sort of, uh, well, I mean, reality and plus what you're talking about, like the perception of young people being progressive. Yeah. Um, it, it's very interesting, and I, I think that's part. I honestly, yeah, the national I mean, identity bit is why I think those numbers look that way. Yeah, Melissa, uh, we don't have time to get into it. We talk about this a lot, and uh, it's actually an area where I think we we do like come to a bit of like a, yeah. a disagreement, mm. which is, um, you know, uh, I think if if you try. If you don't tend to some of these questions of identity and, and particularly national identity and culture, uh, they don't go away. Uh, A, you're answering those questions e even if there's the pretense that they're not being answered, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, this is uh, why... France's conception of, of, of secularism and, and church-state separation is yeah. just so... Um, which is core does, of French national identity. Right, which yeah. doesn't doesn't work, right? And, and, and we could go down a whole path. Maybe we need to have an episode on, on nationalism and identity. Um, but it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this election goes. The last comment I want to make, you know what it's going to be anytime we're talking about a national election in France... I need to talk about it. It's maybe my most controversial uh, policy. It's not even that I 100% endorse this policy. It, it's just that it seems to strike at what is a profound problem uh, in the American context, which is uh, if you turn on French television or look at a French newspaper anytime after 8 p.m. local time, French local time, uh, tomorrow evening to election, uh, uh, to polls being closed on Sunday, you will not read a quote from the candidate or uh, their supporters because France has a very anti-First Amendment, anti-free speech uh, uh <laughs> Law that requires a media blackout on uh, uh, on basically on electoral campaign coverage. They could cover sort of uh, sort of turnout data and that kind of thing. Just none of the candidates or their supporters are allowed to have a voice uh, in French media for twenty four hours. Uh, 
look, I I think there there should be a robust discussion of all the ways that that could uh, uh, that there could be negative consequences to that. There were some reports in 2017 that sort of bots and sort of in a social media age that you know uh, uh, it it actually um, uh, it actually opens up the door to nefarious actors reaching voters and candidates being defenseless in a way that um, uh, is problematic. So we should talk about all the negative consequences. What I like about it is that um, I think it's like I think it's really healthy. It means that candidates can't throw out sort of crazy last minute uh, uh, criticisms or promises uh, that they know they won't be held accountable for before polls close. This happens in American politics all the time. You you have a supporter or even the candidate themselves make some kind of crazy campaign promise to try and increase turnout or says something absolutely insane about their opponent in the hopes that the word will spread enough to have an impact, but that there's not enough time for them to be held accountable for it. Well, if there's a media blackout, the, the capacity for doing that is somewhat, uh, is significantly limited. Um, so I just want to, it's such an interesting law. It would be in a, you know, I think there would be First Amendment constitutional issues in the American context, but I do think it's a helpful like thought exercise. What would be the benefits of having that specific law? And then, you know, uh, what what other proactive policies could we put in place so that uh, our uh, electoral culture, our political culture, was not so toxic? so uh, saturating, so psychologically manipulative to the citizenry. Um, that is a, a, a set of conversations I'm interested in having. Honestly, you reform campaign finance and I think you'd get rid of like a majority of uh, American political problems. So right, so campaign finance, I think, you know, there's always been talk about, you know, can we do shorter election uh shorter election uh sh- shorter campaigns. So right, there are all kinds of sort of um uh, uh, uh policies obviously with social media, there's all talk about sort of different kinds of regulations and policies that social media companies can have without government sort of uh, mandating it. And then, of course, government mandated sort of regulation. Um, but it is it is just uh, I, ha- I had to bring it up. It's such an interesting, uh, interesting uh, regulation that mm-hmm. France has uh, uh, on, on media. Yeah, yeah, I mean, most European elections seem far, uh, sorry, um, campaigns seem far healthier than American campaigns. Right, completely. I mean, the UK, I mean, they, yes. they're only allowed to campaign for a very short time. Six weeks, I mean, right? the fact that Emmanuel Macron could be suffering so Is much it six in the weeks, polls. six months? Yeah, six yeah. weeks. Yeah, yeah. The fact that Emmanuel Macron, the current president of France, could be suffering so much because of the Ukraine crisis, <laughs> because he... It was during when he could have campaigned. And it's not like he could have campaigned before, gotten a huge base, gone and been the hero in Ukraine, and then, you know, come out still with his high poll numbers. No, like, that was his time to campaign, and he couldn't. Like, I mean, right. that's wild to me. Like, the, the the president of France just couldn't campaign, and now he's suffering for it. Like, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so we we could talk about we could talk about this uh, for much longer as well. But I do think it's time uh, we we land the plane. Uh, and so, uh, as always, would love for folks to um, subscribe. Reclaiminghope.substack.com. It would be uh, we're so grateful for those of you that are subscribers. And uh, more support means that we could do more work for you all. Um, uh, so we'll keep an eye on what happens. Will there be a runoff? Will it be Macron, Le Pen? How strong is Le Pen in this first round? Does it suggest that she could be a real threat, or does she underperform even in this even in this uh, first first round of, uh, of of voting in France? Uh, Anything you'll be looking for in the next week? I mean, I think we should say Justice uh, Katanji Brown Jackson uh, is now Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, and so that was that was uh, I think really powerful and historic uh, to to see, and it will be. I think there will be a lot of eyes on her when she appears on the bench for the first time. Yeah, uh, but. Yeah, Super Bowl. Anything, anything yeah. else you'll be looking for in the week ahead? <sighs> Getting, we're, we're gonna be heading off to Buffalo to, <laughs> for Easter. So Shuffling honestly, off to Buffalo. Yeah, no, oh, I missed it. Yeah, missed you just chance. missed it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> honestly, so that's what good. that's what I'm gonna be concentrating on. But no, I'm gonna be very much after Sunday with France's election. If if Marine Le Pen underperforms, then I even just by the slightest, even if the narrative just catches on that she underperformed, then I'll breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this has been Where is the Love? Uh, I'm Michael Weir. Oh, I'm Melissa Weir. And it's been so good to be with you. (laughs) Bye.